Hey folks, I'm really excited to share a special offer with my listeners today. Skip the trip to the pharmacy each month for your birth control. Get free delivery with free goodies. Yes, free, like Haichu, which are super tasty, chocolate, tea, and even more. Never run out of birth control again. <laughs> That's a big deal, y'all. Get Pandia Health Peace of Mind. Pandia Health makes sure no one runs out of birth control on their watch. Pandia Health brings you a pain-free birth control delivery right to your door. I know one of my biggest fears was making sure that I had my birth control prescription scheduled just right so I could pick them up before I ran out of pills. Ugh, seriously, never again. But now, Pandia Health is here to help you out with free delivery of your birth control pills from the only, the only women and doctor founded, women and doctor led company in birth control delivery. Already have an active prescription at a pharmacy and insurance to cover the medications, Pandia's health delivery, automatic refills, and a reminder to see your primary care physician each year. Those services are completely free. If you ever need a doctor consultation because you want to change the method of birth control or the pills that you take and you don't have an active prescription, it's just 29 bucks once a year to access Pandia Health's expert, passionate doctors for the next 364 days. You save the trip to the pharmacy each month, plus you save the trip to the doctor to get your birth control prescription. Pandian Health can deliver to all 50 states. They take almost all private insurance, except for Kaiser. They do take family-packed PACT, which is also wonderful. Pandia Health is about care, convenience, and confidentiality. Head over to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com and sign up now. Now, don't forget the code. You get some money off if you get the code Sex Talk with Erica. That's Erica with a K. And you get $5 off the doctor consultation if needed. Because I'm a curious person, I had to ask about the name and I find it pretty cool. Pandia Health comes from the Greek goddess of healing light, full moon Pandia. Pan equals every, dia, day. Pandia Health has you covered each day of the year. It's called the Pandia Peace of Mind. Y'all, go check it out. Sex talk, Derek and Miley, cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sex just isn't good enough, no. Sex talk with Derek and Miley. Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. You ready for the nerdery people? Because I, I brought you someone super fun and really selfishly uh, because I was I've been nerding out. Uh, I found Brian Earp on NPR. I heard an interview and I'm talking about your new book called Love Drugs that you wrote with Julian Savaliscu, right? Did I get it right? That's right? Yeah. And Brian Earp is the associate director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy. And of course, the writer of this book. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on your podcast. 
I just want to jump right in because this book is great, y'all. Y'all need to go out and get it. It just came out about two weeks ago here in the U.S. In the U.K., it's called Love is the Drug. I have so much to say. I have so much I want to talk to you about. I, I want to I want to hear your thoughts. It's been just sitting on my computer for eight years, and now it's out there in the world. So I'd love to know <laughs> what, you, what you think about it. I mean, I that psychedelics come up with my clients a lot. It, it comes up because I think people, you know, in therapy, they often feel more safe to talk about some of their drug use, maybe historically or even in their life now. So, mm-hmm. like, I, maybe we should start with, like, how can you describe to the listeners, like, the typical use of psychedelics and DMA, psilocybin, LSD in mental health treatment or, or, or otherwise? Sure. There's been a couple of different phases of that. Uh, it, it, up until the 1980s, MDMA and psilocybin and some of the other psychedelic drugs were being used as adjuncts to psychotherapy and in some cases, couples counseling, which is more of the, the use that we focus on in the book. And just to take the case of MDMA, uh, once it leaked out and was starting to be used recreationally in the rave scene, where young people were dancing all night in hot warehouses without drinking water and mixing it with all sorts of other drugs. It got this reputation as being a dangerous party drug and triggered a conservative backlash or or kind of a reactionary policy move where it was hastily and ham-fistedly listed as a Schedule I substance, which is supposed to be reserved for, for substances that don't have any therapeutic value and are demonstrably harmful. Right, like what they did with cannabis, right? Like it's very similar. Yeah, I mean, the history of the treatment and the criminalization of cannabis use is, you know, that has racist elements to it, and that's a whole other story. But it's often the case that a drug's status as being considered medicinal or recreational or whatever has more to do with politics and contingencies of history than it does with a clear-eyed assessment of the actual benefits and risks of the drug. And in the case of MDMA, there were demonstrably powerful therapeutic effects that had been observed in many contexts where... Uh, psychiatrists and couples counselors and so forth had been using the drug in, a, in, in that therapeutic way. Um, and the evidence of harm was, was primarily limited to this highly confounded situation where the drug was being used with other drugs and used in an irresponsible way and not with professional oversight. And so what happened was when the drug was, was listed as this prohibited substance, it's not the case that all therapists around the world suddenly stopped using it because they were very convinced of its efficacy. And so essentially what happened is there became an underground therapy world where uh, therapists continued to train each other in the use of this drug. And then through all sorts of back doors and you have to know somebody kind of a, a network uh, for the last 40 years, there's been this, this continuous underground use. And what's happened is that those who were seriously invested in the therapeutic potential of this drug have worked painstakingly for decades, along with others, as each kind of generation moves forward to bring these drugs back into the mainstream of medicine. And there's recently been buy-in from the, the FDA and from other regulatory agencies to trial these drugs as adjunct treatments for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and otherwise incurable depression and so forth. And the preliminary results from those trials have been so very positive that uh, they're now entering into phase three clinical trials and there's starting to be a shift in the culture, both generally speaking, but among scientists and medical professionals who realize that if used carefully in the right way among properly pre-screened people, drugs as an adjunct to therapy of this particular kind can be far more effective than anything else that's currently available with fewer of the kinds of side effects uh, without so much of a risk of dependency and so forth. So this is a, a new world that's opening up really just in the last handful of years. Thank goodness for the folks who even took giant risks 
and continued to bring this treatment into their practices and kept track, even at risk to losing licenses. And and maybe that's maybe that's something that folks don't really understand is that we all of us out here who do you know healthcare, we actually do care, and we want you to get better. And sometimes we'll do things to promote treatments that we know are working that politically maybe not are exciting. <laughs> yeah. Or that are controversial in one way or the other. Um, but it's good. Uh, it's good now to see that this is happening in a, in a careful way. I think that one concern that people have who, some of whom were kind of underground for all these years and others of whom were, were working in the daylight on this issue, they're concerned about triggering another kind of a backlash because it, they, they really are very convinced that if used in the right way, these drugs can be very powerful and very helpful for many people. And so they're concerned to, to go about this now in the, in the most above board, most careful, most scientifically responsible, uh, most politically supported way that they can, because they want to make sure that as an ongoing feature of our therapeutic environment, that there will be access to these drugs for those for whom they could be beneficial. I'm just, I, I want to, somebody start a GoFundMe or whatever we need to do to help fund some of this research so that we can help people in the best ways that we can. So I, I again, I'm going to say y'all go out and buy this book because we're only going to get a taste today. It's there, This book is so full of, of such wonderful and important information. But Brian, can you describe like the use of psychedelics within couples therapy and, and how how it's how you kind of talk about it in your book sure I'll, I'll focus on the case of mdma because that's the case i know best and although similar kinds of statements could be made about psilocybin for magic mushrooms which have also been used in this couples therapy kind of a context although there's less information about that that's been published in the scientific literature but basically here's how it works for for mdma assisted couples counseling and i'm referring back to the model from the 1980s although there's now just beginning to be a very small program looking at couples counseling where one of the partners has ptsd and that's there's only eight or nine couples who have who have been enrolled in this program and again the preliminary results are very promising but the bulk of our information comes from the 1980s before it was prohibited the way it works is that the couple comes in and they have an ongoing relationship with the with the therapist who understands a lot of the dynamics and the details of that particular relationship. So one thing to say right off the bat is that the proposal is not to just throw a drug at any old problem, but rather to very carefully understand what exactly is going on with this couple. And is it the case, for example, that uh, one or the other of them or both of them are, are, are dealing with unprocessed traumas, maybe difficult things that have happened between them that they're just unwilling to talk about openly because it triggers this automatic defensiveness or they're stuck in a particular kind of a rut where Conventional talk therapy doesn't seem to be helpful because they don't want to talk about those things. Um, if they understand that they might, with the use of this drug in a safe environment, simply feel more willing to approach some of these underlying traumatic experiences or other difficulties, longstanding difficulties in the relationship, that they'll be able to approach those things with a, a spirit of openness and less of a, an automatic hair trigger fear response, then, you know, couples can put themselves into a state of mind whereby they might be able to more fruitfully and productively work through some of these difficult issues that may have been plaguing their relationship for a very long time. Just in terms of what's happening in the brain, MDMA is a drug that, that causes a massive release of serotonin. And serotonin is a, is a naturally occurring brain chemical, so it's nothing crazy or outside of what our brain is, is used to metabolizing, but it is a lot of serotonin that is concentrated in a relatively short period of time. 
it seems to act on on emotional centers of the brain to temporarily impair that kind of knee-jerk fear response. And so this is why it seems to show such promise as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Because if you've seen a bunch of violence and bloodshed in the war zone and you come to talk to your therapist and they say, so tell me what it was like in Baghdad, you just shut down or you start to have flashbacks or you, you do everything you can to avoid talking about the thing that really is the problem. And so if you, if you feel really safe and really comfortable for three or four hours with your partner, with a therapist, after having done the, the, the appropriate preparatory work and you, you know what to expect and you know the kind of mindset that's important to bring into it, then there's pretty good evidence that a number of couples in the past and, and hopefully more couples in the future as this research unfolds uh, will be able to be in, into a, a state of mind where they can deal with some of the underlying problems and in a way that they can then take the insights from that therapy session and, and integrate them into their normal waking consciousness. So the idea is not to just keep taking drugs for the rest of your life, but to have a couple of targeted, powerful, transformative, potentially drug experiences that then you don't keep having. You, you, you learned what you needed to learn, and then it's up to you to exercise your will and your effort and your reason in, in implementing those, those improved habits and insights into your, into your daily life. To me, when I'm thinking about the, the treatment that I have walked through, many, many couples or individuals working around trauma, sexual trauma, as a sex therapist, I'm often working with sexual trauma, especially historical sexual trauma. And it this sounds like what we've tried to be doing with other types of treatment. I use a lot of mindfulness with my clients. I, I know I have other colleagues who use EMDR. So like it, this sounds like uh, essentially exactly what we've been trying to do, but in a more direct and in, in not intensified, that's not the word I want, like it, much more like um, very um, protocol driven way. Is, is that kind of what they're, they're thinking when it comes to taking these couples through these experiences? Yeah, the, the thought was, was not that these drugs were going to be a quick fix, but that they would enhance the very sorts of aims of, of traditional therapies. So again, the point is not that this, this drug is riding in on a, on a horse to solve everybody's problems, but rather that it seems to, uh, sort of like you said, to, to intensify or to enhance the, the very aims and modes and methodologies of, of conventional talk therapy, just so that people are somewhat more receptive to the therapeutic effects that, that you're trying to bring about anyway. That seems to be the, the general thinking about this as an adjunct to therapy, not a replacement for therapy. Yes. Beautifully put, everybody. Did you hear that? Rem remember, not a replacement for therapy. This is this is to help that experience move forward so that you can do um, have the conversations you need to have without those feelings of maybe without those feelings of, of terror. So my clients do talk about that, the experimentation and maybe the experimentation they've done in their lives. Mm -hmm. like, and, and they talk about personal, deep, meaningful experiences. Can you talk about this a little bit in the framework of your work in relationships? Definitely. I, I think that when people think of psychedelic drugs uh, and MDMA, and I, I draw that distinction just because they act differently on the brain. MDMA causes the release of serotonin, whereas psychedelic drugs bind to serotonin receptors. And so they have different mechanisms of action, but they're often talked about in, in the same breath. Um, when people think about these drugs, very often they have the cultural stereotype of recreational use in the 1960s, and where the point of taking the drug is to have a fun experience. And the thought is, well, why would you take this mind-altering substance for something as seemingly uh, trivial as as a good time, and so there, you know, for people of a more conservative mindset, the thought is that that seems inappropriate in some way. 
I think what people don't realize is that also in the 1960s, there were people who, who had a very rich understanding of the potential of some of these drugs to facilitate meaningful experiences, not just recreational or superficial experiences. And so there was at that time and, and, and in the intervening decades, uh, a commitment among some people to think through what they might characterize as spiritually transformative experiences. Now, I don't, I don't know what spiritual means. It's a word that starts to get a little poetic and it's not clear what, you know, maybe you have to be committed to a certain view of us as spiritual beings or something like that. But whatever language you want to use, it's clear that some people who have used these drugs under particular conditions and in a, in a careful and a responsible way find that deep aspects of their inner life are brought forward into their consciousness for kind of a, a reevaluation or, or a new perspective taking that they find to be illuminating rather than obfuscating. Adjusting the narrative, it sounds like. A- adjusting that narrative and how they've interpreted it in, in, in their life story total, totally and wholly. Exactly. I mean, so one, one analogy that I use in the book, and I got this from my colleague, Ole Martin Moen, who's a philosopher in, in uh, Norway, is, you know, there are all sorts of things we do to try to change our perspective on the world temporarily to gain some insights. So a really straightforward pedestrian example is just imagine a, a microscope. Uh, you get a microscope and you look at something on a slide. And, you know, it's true that the, that the lens of the microscope is in some sense distorting or refracting the light and causing the world to appear differently to you than it does in your normal vision. But, but what you're seeing is no less real for being refracted through a lens. In fact, you're getting some information or some perspective on the world that's, that's informative. It's actually revealing something about the world that otherwise is unavailable to you with your normal resources. And similarly, what, what these drugs can do if used in the right way and with all, all the caveats that I keep referring to is they can present a different perspective on yourself, on the world, how you relate to, to, to the world and others around you. That is like having a different perspective that's not necessarily inauthentic. I think people think, well, it's just like, you know, getting higher. It's some sort of hallucination. Well, it's true. You may have some aesthetic experiences and so forth, but you may also have meaningful identity-related experiences, experiences related to your narrative and your understanding. And, and it's not that you lose track of everything you ever knew about yourself, but it's more like having an experience that gives you a different perspective on the things that you know about yourself so you can decide whether there are some valid insights in that new perspective. Yes, it's essentially like what we do in mindfulness, in the mindfulness work I do is that we allow ourselves to kind of take a step back from what the mind is doing. And and this is essentially similar in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the way that we normally experience the world is a particular way that it's presented to us because it's useful for things like getting around and not bumping into furniture and getting to work on time and so forth. And, and this particular state of consciousness is useful for that kind of thing. But we know that this isn't all there is to the world because there are other animals that have different central nervous systems and different sensory equipment, and surely the world looks different to them. So a bat, which relies on sonar, is going to have a different model of the world than than we have. Bees, which can detect ultraviolet light uh, as part of their navigational system, you know, the world looks different to them. So there's information out there in the world that's real information that our central nervous system usually filters out because it's not it's not conducive to the normal kind of survival and reproduction needs uh, of our mind that that shaped our default mode of consciousness. So the thought is, if you if you can temporarily suspend that that default model and allow other kinds of information to come in for a time, and then when the the, the drug wears off, integrate that new information into your understanding of of the world, you may in fact have a richer and more robust acquaintance with the way things are. It's not so much a distortion, or you're just getting some false hallucinatory account of things. It's that there's a lot of information out there in the world that we normally don't consider. And this may be a way of allowing us to temporarily take in a different perspective than we would normally have access to. 
Absolutely beautifully put. What what would it mean to your lives out there, listeners, if you could, I'm not saying go out and try to find some MDMA, but what would it mean to your lives if you were sitting with a therapist, being able to look at your life in a completely different way with new information or a completely different lens, new glasses on for other for a better way to put it? And, and one reason not to go just find some MDMA and experiment in your basement is because the, the drug is very powerful and it can have very troubling uh, experiences. Some people, you know, you dig up a trauma and you don't necessarily have a trained therapist there to help you work through it. That can be super destructive because now you're walking around with this crazy thing that's been unleashed from your subconscious and and may make it uh, very difficult for you to, to, to heal. And so like any powerful tool, it can be used for good or for ill and it can have positive positive, powerful effects and negative, powerful effects. And so the whole point of trying to uh, insist in this new regime that, that these drugs be used in a careful way that's, that's in the context of therapeutic assistance is so that the chance of having a beneficial therapeutic effect rather than something that is scary and destructive can be ensured as far as possible. I just, I'm just so excited to see where all of this research goes. And I know I'm, I'm nowhere near as excited as probably you are. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just so excited to see the outcome. So how do we know? And I think this is important to touch on generally. Do we know how drugs elicit prescription, what have you, are impacting our relationships overall? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, we've been focusing on, on MDMA and psychedelics because it's kind of the latest and greatest new thing and there's this renaissance going on. But another big theme of our book is that we're, we're ingesting as a society a lot of chemicals for what we, ca- what we consider medicinal purposes. And we tend to have this confusion where we think that what the drug is, is a drug that's for that purpose. So an, an example is we take what are called SSRIs, which means selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's the most common drug that's used for to treat depression. And so we call it an antidepressant pill. But it, that's just what we call it. It, it. What it is is a chemical, and the chemical is, is a chemical that has certain effects on the brain, and we don't know what effects it's having unless we measure them. And so what we, what we critique in, in the book is this obsession in Western medicine with individuals and their individual symptoms. And we say, if you're going to introduce a drug that, that has an effect on people's neurochemistry, including the neurochemistry that underlies their romantic partnerships, it's really irresponsible to only say, well, tell me about your symptoms of depression. You should also include measures that say, tell me about your relationship. How is, how is your family life? How is this affecting the community that you live in and how you relate to others throughout your day? Or your sexual health, which or I your like shout health. from yeah. the rooftops. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, so, so SSRI is one of the most well-documented side effects is that it can impair libido for, for some people. And, you know, thinking about I mean, libido has complex role in relationships. People have high libidos and low libidos and libidos that are elicited under certain conditions and not others and so forth. So, you know, even if you have uh, one and the same effect, a decreased libido, let's say, how that's going to affect a relationship may be very complicated and that's going to be context dependent. And so, but the point is we're hardly even studying this stuff. And yet there's a whole world out there of interpersonal effects of drugs that we are already using for medicinal reasons that we think should be studied in, in, a, in a careful and systematic way so that we can, at the very least, understand what we're doing to our relationships with these drugs we're ingesting for other purposes. And yes, 
Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I want to I want to make sure that we get to my segment, Ask Erica, because I think that this will you've already you've already even introduced it well, and, and I really want to talk about how drug use can impact our sex lives, and I mean drug, I mean generally the umbrella, but I also kind of want to specifically talk maybe about some of the things you know about MDMA and the use of it to enhance sexuality. Yeah, so I don't. I haven't studied the sexual effects of MDMA all that much. And one thing that I know from what I have looked into is that the the effects are highly variable. So for some people who, for example, really struggle with intimacy and may feel closed off or have difficulty with touch or something like that, there are some people for whom MDMA at certain doses may allow them to uh, be more open to certain kinds of physical intimacy that would otherwise be difficult for them. On the other hand, for somebody who's very highly sensitive to stimuli, and now you take a drug which makes you even more sensitive to stimuli, actually having a sexual experience could be completely overwhelming and would be too much for a different person. So this is yet another example where you know you have one and the same drug with ostensibly similar effects, and, and yet the implications for the, the sexual aspect of a relationship is going to depend on the person, the nature of their sexual life, and, and the values that govern their, their sexual interactions. And so we, we need to be doing research on, to, on, on the complex and multidimensional effects that these drugs are, are going to be having on people's intimate lives. It absolutely matters. So often, and, and the cannabis is an excellent example of this. I have many, many clients who come in and they talk about their cannabis use and it heightening their experience of, of having sex or any of their sexual health practices. But I've also had other clients talk about that, that it does not help them. It actually impacts their ability to be sexual with people. So you are completely right that we need to understand this more. We need to understand the context more and we need to understand it scientifically. We need the research. One of the things that I often run into is, um, and you do mention this in the book, I've had clients use microdosing with specifically psilocybin. And there we need the research, we need more research in the sexual effects of psilocybin because there could be, we're, we're not sure, but there could be erectile dysfunction issues because some, some of the clients that I worked with that are microdosing regularly, some of them are experiencing some erectile issues. So we need to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there's, because, because these drugs interact with a kind of cascading sequence of neurochemical reactions in the brain, you try to intervene and save the serotonin system. And that's going to have knock-on effects on things that may, you know, upregulate or downregulate testosterone, depending on what's going on. And that may have an effect on libido. And so understanding the different ways that these drugs can affect things like erectile function or dysfunction is, is a good example. And right now what you have is mostly anecdotes, precisely because microdosing is illegal and it's being done in a, in a kind of ad hoc way by people who are getting advice in the gray literature. We don't really know how to are we dealing with confounds? You know, is it that it's something else that's causing erectile dysfunction? It just happens to co-occur with the, the microdosing? Or is the person pretty sure that there was a causal effect? And then how would we actually demonstrate that scientifically? But right now, it's just this vast unknown with very, very poor data for the most part. And hardly anything has been published systematically and nothing to my knowledge prospectively on microdosing in the current literature. We need more, 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 and we need more of you, Brian. <laughs> Sometimes when I have a lot of deadlines, I think, gosh, it would be great to have more of me. If I could just, you know, split this up and divvy up the work, that would be great. So I'll, I'll, I'm on board with that suggestion. Sure. <laughs> so how do people find you in the world, Brian? 
Well, uh, if people are interested in reading papers, I try to make those freely available at academia.edu and uh, ResearchGate. So you can just Google my name, Brian Earp, and either of those sites and that will come up. Um, but I'm pretty active on Twitter. Brian David Earp is my handle. And, you know, anyone can just say hello uh, via that means if they, want, if they like. And I try to be pretty responsive. That's awesome. And y'all, I have links to the book, Love Drugs, in the show notes. So if you are looking, I, I tell you, go out, get it. There's so much wonderful information. And it is, the thing I have to say is, and I, I don't say this often, I'm really honest when I read a book, if if I want to suggest it to people or not, <laughs> it is readable for everyone. It is not written in a way that everyone won't understand. So I appreciate you saying that the goal was definitely to write it in a way that, you know, anyone can pick it up and get something out of it. And so uh, you're saying that means a lot to me just from the perspective of somebody who cares a lot about accessibility of ideas. I don't want this to be an ivory tower thing where just a few eggheads can talk about it. This is really something that it's a conversation we all need to be having as a society. And so that's, that's very much the point of the book. Beautifully put. Nerdery for everyone. Everyone. Uh, Equal opportunity (laughs) nerdery. Sure. (laughs) That's going on a cup. We need to make it a coffee cup (laughs) for real. Again, Brian, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Erica. Thanks, folks, for sitting with us and listening to all of our nerdery. You can find this show anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.